if the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Welcome to a state sale, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Lori Lattimore Volkman. And I'm Brad Rayleigh. And we have a super awesome guest with us today, a friend from high school, a fellow anti-Trump activist, and as we've discovered, probably my soul sister, Colleen Thomas. Hi guys, thank you for having me today. I'm flattered you asked me to join your conversation. We are excited to have you. This week, we are going to go a little bigger picture on this president and his total lack of qualification for the job. Whether it's general leadership, genuine care for all Americans, interest in doing the hard work of bringing Republicans and Democrats together on issues that matter to American families like health care, the cost of college, federal minimum wage, or just generally being a decent human being, Trump fails the job on every level. But his brokenness has also put major cracks into our democratic government and revealed huge divisions in our country. So even if Joe Biden wins the presidency, cross your fingers, in the upcoming election, there's going to be a lot of work to be done to heal this brokenness. And if Trump cheats his way back into the White House, as he's trying so desperately to do, then this country is going to be doomed unless progressives become even more active and more vigilant in stopping this authoritarian president. So, (laughs) with that fun backdrop, Brad and Colleen We've been witnessing Trump's inadequacies for years, and they've been on full display in these recent debates and town halls, and especially at his rallies. Whether it's the lying, or the failed attempts to drum up scandal, or the myriad of revelations of his own corrupt practices, secret China bank accounts, for example, what do we make of all of this with just over a week to go? The thing that's actually been an oddity, a paradox, an open contradiction is his fans often show him and, and point to Trump as some kind of alpha male, that he's the, the return to the, the man's man kind of thing. This man whines more than anybody I have ever seen. I mean, we, we, you know, we mock him in terms of school-aged children. You both have had school-aged children. It feels to me like I don't know any school-aged children that whine as much as this man does. Every time, he, he is never responsible for anything. And, and the fact that he's Fans can somehow still gloat about him when he just complains and whines and says, poor me. I don't know if any of you guys saw one of his rallies recently in Iowa. He got up there and got on a rant about um, how when, he, when his Nobel uh, Prize nomination came out. His nomination. That's Noble. Noble Prize. Noble. That's right. His Noble Prize. Um, <laughs> there and said that he went back to, to, to the residency and was watching TV and all they were doing was talking about floods here in Iowa and the crops and, you know, where's my Nobel Prize? And, and the, whoever posted on Twitter was like, he's talking to people who were flooded, right? <laughs> he's right, right. No. But all he can do is talk about himself. Well, so let's dig into that just for a second, Brad. I think it's interesting. I, you know, I never was a Trump fan, but, you know, we've all known about him in the media for 20 years or more, right? And even when he wrote The Art of the Deal and when we saw these things that he'd build and then they'd fall apart, you know, throughout his history in New York and elsewhere, I just feel like he's true to, he's true to his brand, right? This is who he's always been. But that, that um, 
macho thing where, you, you know, his followers really applaud him as a man's man. I think that's just an ode to hubris, really. It's just, yeah. um, it's just this sort of narrow view of, well, he has a big mouth and he uses it, so they applaud that. Notice women who speak up and are assertive are nasty, but nonetheless, right. you know, they're applauding that macho side. And I don't think they scratched the surface very, very far yeah. to, to get there. But I think Trump has always blamed others for his failures. Oh, yeah. He's always, he's always been a bit of a crybaby and a manipulator of his media image. And all he cares about is his ratings. And so, I mean, not to oversimplify the man, but I think that those are fair assessments from his business life that, that far preceded the presidency. And he just seems to have learned very little from holding the office that he does. So for me, it's not a surprise, but I just think there's this really strange resurgence in the in the country going back to that kind of old-fashioned machismo mm -hmm. misogynistic crap that we used to really have in the 70s and 80s and toxic toxic masculinity yeah and i you know i just i just can't get on board anymore i'm i turned 50 this last year and i'll tell you what it's liberating in a lot of ways but one of the ways it's liberating is that you really can see things in terms of just this lens on the difference between men and women at least i can in a way that i didn't maybe fully fully grasp it before and i i, I just really shun this resurgence of this masculine bullshit honestly <laughs> well you've probably had this conversation with your kids before colleen but well, you know with my boys i've had to remind them you know the the kids who pick on somebody it isn't because they actually do feel strong and secure with themselves it's because sure. they feel the exact opposite so a bully is truly a, ref a reflection of the most insecure person you could find. And that is exactly what Trump has shown us, which as you say, we have known, we have always known that, but it probably wasn't as obvious because what we really mostly saw was the media image that he presented for us, which was brash, braggadocious, not intelligent or with much substance. But I don't think we realized truly what a broken human being he was and how much he could corrupt that whole party even more. I mean, the crumbling of American democracy in four years was not foreseen. Number one, the power of the office, right? I mean, if the presidency isn't one of the biggest tests that, that a man or woman could be put to, I don't know what is. And also, I think the failing of the GOP, or I should say the majority of the GOP, senators who are in power to support um, his brand of incompetence, has been a little shocking to me, I have to say, but again, I think it, it sits with the power of the office. And I think that, um, you know, folks don't feel like they can really oppose the president or they feel like it, it's, you know, bad for their own career. So I really have to say um, that the unsung hero to me in this administration has been the few Republicans who've found their backbone and stood up and said, not okay, this, this brand of politics is not for our country, this doesn't work. And I think we see it much more at the state and local level than we do at the national level, but, yeah, I was going to say, who's done that? Because I haven't seen that. <laughs> <laughs> My senators here in South Carolina, for example, have not done that. Not even close. No, I agree. No, I think in the spirit of John McCain, who always had, um, whether you believe in his politics or not, he always had a sense of, of fairness and decency in terms of the way he conducted his public image. You know, even when he yes, ran against Obama and, you know, at, at his town halls, people would call Obama a Muslim or a terrorist and he would say, no, ma'am. That's not accurate. You know, I think that that spirit, and, and I'm not saying it's not few and far between, but that idea of, of Republicans who will stand up and say, this is way far off the track for me. 
um, even at the state and local level matters, but God, it's just the vast minority. And so it's not enough, right? And I think we'll see that hopefully in the election that this, the Senate will get reprimanded for that behavior for condoning Trump's brand. Hope so. By the way, I, I'm going to take this back to the Tea Party. Um, and and I, I think it goes back before that. And I think it really is Fox and talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, the influence on that. But I, I was reminded of when the Tea Party first arose, people like Chuck Grassley were saying, no, 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 we don't need that kind of uh, right-wing you know, influence in the party. But then they looked at them winning elections. Yeah. And I mean, you watch them and that's essentially, it's, it's been, I think the reason that they put up with Trump is that they are honestly as transactional as he is. And so when they see a transactional kind of advantage, yeah, he's awful. I mean, we just saw this with Ben Sasse, right? I mean, somebody who in a phone call to, to fundraisers in Nebraska basically admitted everything that we've been saying about Trump, but he won't say it publicly and he won't come out and say that he's not voting for Trump and he won't come out and, and you know, endorse Biden because he has to do this both sidesism kind of thing. Sure. So it's, this is these people who are supposedly good aren't because they honestly they they're looking at it and they say i can win i can make money i can i can consolidate power um i'm i'm and and they've shown that i guess is what i'm saying i i think we do have obviously a history of i mean i can think back to howard baker being the one that went to richard nixon and told him that he needed to resign because the the numbers were against him he was going to lose you know we have we have maybe maybe mitt romney uh maybe right well, yeah Lori. Yeah. Lori just Lori just rolled her eyes again to the point that I worry about her health. So I'm wearing the baseball cap, so you can't tell. That's how just much to before they leave your head. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> I know that look. I am far more cynical about all of them. It actually showed itself this past week. Confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett. There has been a clear agenda for Mitch McConnell, and he has made everybody fall in line, and that is we will sign this pact with the devil to this imbecile in the office because we need to maintain our power. We can manipulate him and we can use him to keep doing this. And so they have all stayed the course. They wouldn't defend, but they also wouldn't deny some of the asinine things Trump has said. And they do that all because they just don't want to lose their power and their majority. And the goal there has always been the Supreme Court justices. And I believe, you know, Mitch McConnell would go to his grave happy to lose his seat if it meant that his legacy is three Supreme Court justices in, this, in these last four years. It's all been about that. So even Mitt Romney's kind of short little stand on the impeachment trial, even that, he knew it wasn't really going to matter. So it was still a fairly safe thing to do. So let me ask you this. When Lisa Murkowski came out first, came out front and said, I won't vote. I will not vote in favor of a Supreme Court justice until after the election. Do you think she thought there'd be a handful of Republicans that would follow her? I mean, do you think she knew that she was really in a single echo chamber and just didn't care, tried to say what she thought was the right thing? Or do you think she thought others might be behind her and now she's sort of looking over her shoulder, realizing, you know, other than Susan Collins, who's a, a hot mess? Actually, I kind of think it's the opposite. I think... She knows it's not going to matter. She knows they're going to take the vote. She knows they'll be able to confirm without her. And it allows her to tell her constituents, look, I was against the process. I was against doing it this way. I was, I was in favor of waiting. 
They all know they want a conservative court, and that's the goal. And so there's no use. It's a losing battle. So instead, if you look tough, then you actually win the battle personally with your own constituents, and you don't buck the system enough to really get too much ear from Trump and McConnell. That's, I think that's all they were doing. I think it was Steve Schmidt from the Lincoln Project who said uh, about Lindsey Graham, he said, I think people have always misread him, that he, he's always been the parasitical kind of uh, fish around the bigger fish. And so when it was John McCain, and I'm not a huge John McCain fan. I mean, I'll credit him for stopping the repeal of the ACA, and I'll, I'll credit him for that, absolutely. I think that, that Lindsey Graham was in that kind of sphere, and so he gravitated to that. And once McCain was gone, the big fish is Trump. Some of these explanations oh, yeah. are exactly, I think, as Laurie has said, are, are pretty simple. These are just not very good people. They're drawn to simply power and the exercise of power. And so however they perceive that they can get that. Um, I think we're going to see an interesting thing happen, though, or at least we're going to have some of this question. I mean, I'm thinking about Joni Ernst. Joni Ernst is in trouble in Iowa, and it seems to be kind of a weak candidate, honestly. Uh, Lindsey Graham is in trouble in South Carolina, because the one thing that they've been able to count on them till, till now is that they could win elections. I mean, they could get away with this shit. If they can't win elections, what does that do to some of the other people in the party? I mean, it, and if somebody loses in a deep red state, in Georgia, in Iowa, in Kansas. Kansas is a little different. You know, it'll be interesting to see what that does to some of these other, other candidates because, as we've talked about, we don't think that many of them are actually ideologically consistently conservative in the way that they present themselves. I've been joking for years that we are you know, a scandal or a political disaster away from, from some of these people claiming that they've never met Trump that they, they don't even know him. Damn, they never supported him. I don't know who you told you. <laughs> I personally think after the election, if Biden wins, that there will be a huge attempt to distance, the part for the party to distance themselves from Trump. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the record of the last four years will stand, I believe. In this interview I did with Peter Mulvey, music, he's a folk musician I did an interview with uh, last week. He said something interesting. His hope was that the Republican Party completely fractures that the Democratic Party, he wants to actually fracture in between the kind of more pro-corporate side, conservative side of the Democratic Party, and the AOC kind of left-wing side. And he thinks that that would be a healthy thing if those were the two parties that emerged out of this. And then he said, my hope is that this fundamentalist, right-wing, racist, white supremacist side would just finally, for the first time in American history, be orphaned and just left to themselves to sit in their militia camps, you know? Um, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if that'll happen because that is the problem for the Republican party is that they have so narrowed their base down to, to the point that they can't really afford to alienate the QAnon nut jobs because they might lose races. I know. That's been the most disturbing thing for me over the, over the recent um, months coming into this campaign and really over the last four years is this resurgence of racism as if it's a fashion trend like it's back in to be racist in America and I gotta tell you it's really beat down whatever idealism I had left about this country you always knew those people were there you always knew particularly in the deep south that that really blatant racism still exists and even, you know, the recognition of impartial bias in all of us is a fairly recent phenomenon culturally, but 
the resurgence of that and the fact that a major political party embraces those folks, embraces their message, and has really adopted that into the platform has been really shocking to me. Yeah, and very disturbing. Brad, your friend's ideal world after this election, I don't know, we have 40% of the country that's still falling over themselves to support this guy. And it's mostly about racism. So about racism, I think one of the things that's interesting, I think Colleen hit on this, the, the people who talk about racism, and Lori, you're the one that first really told me there's, you're either racist or you're anti-racist. But then somebody I heard on a, on a good podcast actually said, and in the racist camp, you actually can separate those into two. One of them is complicit, which I think I have been a part of for most of my life. Not active and not openly, but certainly been, you know, willing to go along with my white privilege. And then there's the devout side. Mm -hmm. And the problem with Trump is that Trump has made it seem like for some of those people who've been complicit, that they feel aggrieved by being called racist. And so there's been this kind of, it, I still don't think they're devout. I don't think they see themselves as being openly hostile to people of color, whereas the devout people do. I mean, they're like, yeah, we, we hate those people. The possible good news, Lori, for your 40%, if we can get a shift where we can actually have a public dialogue and shaming towards some of these very compl- uh, openly devout racists, Mm-hmm. I think I think there are some of these people who are complicit who are they want desperately to be seen as good people. They want desperately to be seen as good moral people. And for them, the idea of being called racist upsets them because they consider racists to be bad people and they can't be bad people. So instead of digging into that and saying, OK, what is what is my implicit bias? Where am I actually a part of this? They have actually responded negatively and and defensively. I think there's room there for some of those people, not all of them, obviously, uh, but I have some hope. Three days ago, John Kennedy, Senator John Kennedy says, you know, it hurts to be called a racist. I think that's the worst thing you can call an American. And I'm like, well, then don't be one. Like, this isn't hard. Have you seen seen the meme going around? Because some black activist, and I wish I could remember her name, tweeted in response, you should see what they call people of color. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bakari Sellers said, try being called nigger. I mean, he just put it out there. Like, yeah. 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 If you think you're insulted, just wait. Right. And I think that's it. And, you know, even, even for myself, you know, I have a, um, an African-American colleague who's been a mentor to me a, a large part of my adult life. And when George Floyd was killed, I went to him and said, you know, let's talk about this. And he really stiff-armed me and said, no, thank you. And I think for the first time in my adult life, even considering myself, you know, fairly well-educated and well-read, and, and certainly we have, we have friends across the spectrum in terms of people of color in our lives. And what, what it really brought back to me was what you said, Brad, that I've been complicit in some way that I didn't even really fully identify. And, and that is in not understanding that racism is not something for us to empathize with with black people about or with people of color. It is something for us to fix as white Americans. I'll just speak for myself, you know, picking up that baggage and having to really delve through it is a a job. So in terms of Republican Americans, uh, you know, once, once we get rid of Trump, and I just have to hold on to the hope that he will go away sooner rather than later, is that, is that, you know, there is work to be done there, but we've got to open a dialogue and we've got to, got to knock people off of their defensive podium where they're standing saying, I'm not a racist. Maybe that guy over there is, but it's not me. 
I think we've really got to delve into that. And, and this is what, you know, books like White Fragility are all about, is understanding our own history with racism. And not only is having our own white privilege, but having been complicit to whatever level each of us has been. And that's and a job for even liberal um, Democrats, let alone, you know, moderate Republicans, I think, in this country right now. Austin Channing Brown, if you haven't read her book on uh, living with dignity in a white world, um, it's fantastic. And I heard an interview with her where she really actually was openly pissed at white people wanting to use her and say, well, I can't be racist because I like Austin Channing Brown or I'm friends with her. And she's like, I don't have any, I don't have any room for that. That's actually dangerous to me. So this is for you guys to fix. You and I, we, we, we've been talking for years and it's time for white people to actually look at their own shit. And I, and I agree with that completely. Colleen, actually, I'd like to ask you, this is one of the questions I was hoping to bring up because speaking of this 40%, <laughs> um, you have, I think, approximately a thousand percent of those in your Facebook feed. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, not true. Uh, just to clarify for the audience, I have a thousand contacts on Facebook, and I think a handful of them are staunch Republicans. True. Yes. Yes. Okay. I, 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 obviously. Well, Lori still has a few friends um, who, when I see them occasionally no. pop, <laughs> when I see them occasionally pop up in our wall, people from our old days here in, in Fort Collins, I feel the rage uh, already rising in the back of my throat. I have pretty much called every conservative i mean there's a few left that are that very rarely say anything um and and there are times when i feel bad about that that maybe what i've done is cut myself off from this dialogue put myself in this echo chamber i honestly don't feel like i've done that because i read so widely and i mean this is something i am engaged in the in the broader ideas but in terms of engaging with people colleen you have made a decision clearly to keep some of these pe people that i i have been tempted to block just reading your thread <laughs> not, <laughs> not you know yeah. not not just in interaction with me just i yeah. i find them to be absolutely so infuriating that i have to sort of move on you have made a decision here clearly to try to engage with them and so i'm asking about i think your approach to that what do you think might happen out of this and your perception perhaps this is a three-part question what is their worldview that makes them tick I'll just be frank. I've taken quite a bit of heat, even from family members um, and really close friends about the fact that I have not narrowed my circle to liberal Democrats when that is the camp that I firmly live in personally. And here's what I'll say to that. Um, I, I see this trend in liberal politics where many of us, and I get why, many of us have drawn in the fences, right? Because Trump is so egregious, because the news cycle is so unrelenting. And because quite frankly, it, it pisses us off, right? The, the constant barrage of attacks on, you know, everything from a woman's right to choose to uh, the Affordable Care Act to just even common decency among neighbors and friends, right? I mean, it runs the gamut in this country right now. And I have resisted that urge for, for two reasons. One is um, I work in a field, I work in high tech, so I work in a field that is more balanced politically. I wouldn't necessarily say that politics are out in the open in corporate America, but they certainly are more so the last four years. But I have Republican clients and colleagues who are more open about that. And so I've had to, in many ways, remain open. 
The other thing is I come from a mixed background with regards to the political spectrum. You know, my parents were Kennedy Democrats. I was raised in a Jesuit Catholic home, which is, which is more liberal than I think people realize. And um, I think with the current Pope, there's a resurgence to that. And while I'm not, you know, certainly carrying the title of, of Catholic of the Year over here, I'm just saying that I think that, that my values are in large part based in that upbringing, right? Um, so, so because of all of that, I have remained open to having friends from both ends of the spectrum. What I've noticed recently on my Facebook feed, though, is something different. And that is that several men that I know, and I've known for a long time, who tell me privately, oh, we've been friends for a long time, you know, we really respect you, will just churn that wheel incessantly. And I really feel like there is some element of being mansplained to. Like, you know, they really just want me to get their point and, and show me the error of my ways and how I'm thinking wrongly about that. And it's just hard for me to separate that from some sexist um, approach because I will say this, I have some friends who really can stay on topic and never take a personal shot and, and can really just debate the, the issues at hand. And I enjoy a good debate. You know, I like to argue um, my point. I like to really have great sources. I try to be well-read. I try to read a variety of topics. But there is definitely an element with a few folks um, that I know both of you have, have taken note of that they're just unrelenting. And I don't know which part of that is them trying to bring me over to their way of thinking, which is really an impossibility for me, or how much of it is um, just their deep belief in what it is they're fighting for. And I think it's a mixed bag. I know that there is life after this election. It doesn't feel like it right now if, if, if Biden doesn't win, but I know there's life after this election and I know there's gonna be work to do to bring people back to where I still believe the majority of Americans live and that is somewhere near the middle. Right or wrong, that's been my approach thus far. Be, be just real clear. I, I, I meant absolutely zero criticism of you keeping them in your circle. I mean, I, I, I in many ways admire that. As much as I'd like to live in my little liberal shell, it just hasn't really been, been the case for me, you know? And, you know, I don't know that I'm any more diverse than any other American, but I'm married to a lifetime career Air Force officer. I am the daughter of a World War II veteran. So the military influence is very strong in my family. And I really reject the idea that that is a Republican ideal, particularly in the current climate of how Republicanism has been defined by this president. I come from a Je Jesuit Catholic upbringing, and I really resist that that is a Republican ideal, that those ideals of taking care of immigrants and the poor and feeding you know, the hungry and taking care of the elderly and putting education as a top priority for civilization is a, is a Republican ideal. I resist that. And, and, you know, thank God I was raised by Democrats, I guess. But my view is that, um, my view is that those ideals do not belong to one party. And I certainly can understand the, um, the relief of having more like-minded people in your circle. But I just don't know that that we win that way politically long-term. Well, as someone who got involved in that conversation last week on your Facebook page. My God, there's a conversation today, Lori. And I just won't quit. I'm, 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 I'm relentless when it comes to my business. I am too, until, in fact, I even told myself before I got in that conversation, they will not stop and they will not use facts. And so I'm going to be frustrated <laughs> to try to have a a legitimate conversation and legitimate debate with them. I knew that was going to happen, and I still was like, I'm going to jump right in. I'm diving into this conversation. It's just, a problem. it's just like a drug, right? It's hard to resist the urge to be like, wait a minute. 
it's not about yeah. debate. Like if this isn't me saying, I don't want to hear your opinion. It's me saying, I don't want to hear your bullshit because you don't have facts that you're bringing. So you well, can't join this debate anymore. We share your frustration often, Lori, but, but what do you guys think about the bigger topic of how, how post-election, and I won't even say November 4th optimistically, but more like January 20th and beyond, how, how do we begin to open that door? Because I don't think it's unique that a lot of liberals have said, I just have to live in my liberal bubble because the other side is crazy. And, and I mean no disrespect to any Republican I know or don't know by saying that, but truly the leadership is crazy. How do we move on past this crazy period in our history if we have built, forgive the analogy, so many walls up that we can't talk to one another again? A couple points. They do not understand what being a Republican is supposed to mean. They have turned it into a, a right-wing, racist, fascist sort of organization. The Republican National Convention this, this year, for I believe maybe the first time ever, but certainly the first time in recent history, did not put forth a platform at their convention. There is no platform. It is truly the party of Trump. Yeah. And so they don't, I mean, they don't, if you ask Republican voters, GOP voters, most of them don't vote because of the small government, no deficit kind of, you know, fiscal conservative policy. They, they don't even know that that's what it is. Biden wins this election and we win the Senate. One of the things we have to do is just get back to like operating our democratic government the way it's supposed to be where where we're, our our conversations and our debates are over policy differences versus social ideology that they use for political purposes but not for any actual belief or conviction i think part of it too is the government just has to start functioning um on all cylinders again i mean you know there are still hundreds of vacancies in the federal government that Trump has never filled, um, staff positions to appointments that he has just never filled. Um, I think on the military side, you know, we have to go back to um, where we used to live, which is, you know, having at least some modicum of respect for our military leaders to help decide military strategy. I think there's a whole lot of work for economists in, in Washington. I mean, there are just a lot of things that need to happen to get the government fully functioning again, because it's literally operating in, in limited capacity in so many ways. I mean, the Republican Party has changed. There's no doubt in my mind. And I understand what you guys are talking about is some kind of historic idea. And of course, as the historian here, I'd have to say which Republican Party, because, you know, it's not the Republican Party of Lincoln. It's... Uh, you know, what, what I think you guys are referencing is the Eisenhower Republican Party, which was actually much more kind of uh, reasonable on issues of, of economics, uh, cautious on, on foreign policy, those sure. kinds of things. You know, many of us have, have noted Trump is not the aberration. Trump is the logical conclusion of things like Newt Gingrich, Fox News. Um, we saw George W. Bush uh, lie repeatedly. Um, in his efforts, uh, just completely dis disregard facts on economics when it came to taxes. Uh, we saw Mitt Romney, the great Mitt Romney. I say that with, of course, uh, rolling my eyes. Remember when he was running, not only did he choose the little elf man, uh, Paul Ryan, for his vice president, but he um, refused to be fact-checked. You know, that, that, and in fact, it's, as somebody pointed out that when Candy Crowley actually fact-checked Mitt Romney in the debate, 
That's the point where Republicans said no more fact checking. We're not going to have any debates where anybody fact checks. So they created well before Trump ever came down that fucking escalator. They created that situation. And that 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 rot is deep. My answer to your question, which I think is an incredibly valid question, um, is I don't know, uh, partly because I don't know how to have a dialogue with certain things. Um, I, you know, I. I don't know how to have a dialogue with somebody who thinks that my LGBTQ plus people, uh, friends are not uh, deserving of respect. I, I don't know how to deal with somebody who thinks that there is no systemic racism. That one actually is a little bit closer because it feels like that is something that's about ignorance on their part. I don't know how to deal with somebody who thinks putting kids in cages is, is, is morally acceptable. There's going to be some years of shaming here, honestly. I honestly want to tell people in my life who vote for this to say, I'm pulling back from you. I am not going to, I hope you know that. I don't trust you. I'm not going to reveal parts of me to you. I'm not cutting you out of my life completely if you're, if you're a, a longtime friend or a family member. Yeah. But there are going to be consequences. And I am going to pull out the old shun to a certain degree. I'm turning my back on you when you... Yeah. When you put forward these kinds of ideas, sort of piggybacking off of Peter Mulvey, I want to orphan those ideas. I don't want to engage with those ideas. And so if you're going to talk about them, I'm just going to assume you're not a serious person. And, yeah. and, I, and I'm not by any stretch saying that's the right way to proceed. I don't know they're taking the opposite approaches either. Being complicit is, is the, the logical conclusion of not feeling like we have to really address it. It's the conclusion of not being anti-racist or anti-bigot or anti-misogynist, like all of those things. We need to be anti those things. I think we have been. And it doesn't mean that as soon as we win the majority in our government, that then we feel like, oh, we just, now we just need to work together and pass some bills. And, and the attitude for change has got to remain fervent. I like the term shaming because those people who have allowed it to be okay and have not wanted to address it or have not wanted to admit that, yeah, the guy or the, you know, that they support is a crazy racist, not just he tweets too much. If you're not willing to admit that, you need to be called out for it because otherwise we will revisit this whole experience again. I would not be surprised if we do have some serious violence in our future. I absolutely agree with that. Just because I'm asking the question about how we open up dialogue, number one, I don't already have the answer. Um, certainly, I don't profess any wisdom there, but I really think it's worth talking about with fellow Democrats. But I also want to be clear that I'm not suggesting in any manner that we win and then it, we just get to play nice again. I think that it, it's, we're all called upon for greater activism in this country. And quite frankly, even though I've always considered myself politically active, had a pretty easy ride until Trump came along, right? And then, and then you're you're in these really deep, what I consider moral imperative discussions around human rights, right? Human yeah. rights for women, human rights for my LGBTQ friends and neighbors, human rights for people of color, and and so these are real discussions, and I don't expect these discussions are going to go away. Nor will I be willing to sweep them under the rug. I think the question is. Can you have those discussions and stand on your own values and still have people that voted for Trump in your circle, professionally or personally or, you know, within your family? And that's, 
that's the question. And I don't profess to know the right answer, nor do I, nor do I want to seem like I'm claiming any moral high ground by trying to continue to debate. No, that, that, you're asking, you're asking an excellent question. I go back and forth on, on some of these uh, points. I, I, I really don't know how to, to move forward with some of these, these issues. I mean, it feels like they have legitimized all sorts of conspiracies that all of a sudden we find ourselves arguing about things that are ridiculous. Let's say in our perfect scenario here that Biden wins and we get the Senate so that we have some power to make some changes in the government or intolerable because they'll be claiming it was unfair, it was fake news, it was fraudulent. I mean, they, they're not going to admit wrongdoing. I have a good number of Republicans I know that I like to call the brand of, I like my money and I'd like to keep it all to myself Republicans, right? <laughs> they're not openly racist, they're not particularly pro-Second Amendment, they're not particularly anti-abortion, they just really are very wealthy and want their, want their money to remain in their power and, and the tax breaks that go with it. And I'm not excusing that. It's just, it's just an observation. But I think to your point, you know, the fringe has been emboldened. The violent extremists, the racists have been emboldened. And I think we can expect bad things from that. And I think it'll be a real test of a Biden presidency to quickly work with the FBI um, and local law enforcement to get that under control. I don't, I don't see reconciliation coming anytime soon. I think it's going to have to come from essentially beating down this insanity and making it so irrelevant and so inconscionable that people don't you know don't want to have that as part of our society so that being racist is bad you're gonna have to choose there's gonna be a line drawn in january there's been a line drawn but there have been a lot of people who have been very reluctant to to cross that line in in white affluent communities there's there's that's where the reluctance is is really hitting its peak i feel like I see it with neighbors and colleagues, right? That they just are like, you know, we don't want to talk about politics because it's so nasty right now. And I'm like, but these are real human rights issues and how can we turn our back on that? And certainly how can people who profess to be people of faith, regardless of what faith they choose to practice, really turn their back on that? And so I, I agree with you. I think there's a big reckoning coming. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't profess to know the answer on how we, how we reconcile or, or open up a dialogue. I just know that it's, it's going to have to be um, methodical and, and hard fought. Framing the issue, just like you said, Colleen, as a human rights issue. This isn't yeah. a Republican or Democrat thing. This should be human decency and how we treat people. And every single time I get into these stupid debates with these Trump supporters, I'm always like, what do you like about what he's done? Tell me the good things he's done, because all they usually do is complain about Obama. Stop with the crazy. I'll ask, what do you like about Trump? Do you like that he does this to people, that he does this to people, that he does this to people? And not a, not a word. They don't even answer to that. The fire. Are you okay with treating people this way? Are you okay with taking away health care? Are you okay with putting kids in cages? Okay with 8 million people slipping into poverty in the last six months. You know, like, yeah. this is... This is about people. And if you and, and I think we continue constantly with the if you are a Christian, you need to have certain views. It doesn't have to be a political view. This is all about how you are going to treat people and how you, and how your your belief should be fueling that kind of protection and support of the human race. I, I think by the way, 
one of the things I was going to say that might be something that's actually tangible that we can do, their mindset, if they're only listening to Rush Limbaugh, for example, their mind is gone. So <laughs> there's no room for facts. There's no room for, so using logic in that situation is actually counterproductive, oddly enough, you know, because they're not listening to that. My hope is that if we are able to get all the branches to actually just simply institute some hardwired guardrails, to institute some actual reforms. And for one thing, addressing, Lori, your last couple of points, I mean, if we could actually have some reforms in there on immigration that we just absolutely put into law, that we've right. actually put in some anti-poverty measures that are put into law, that we actually um, address future pandemics because there's going to be more, um, that we actually do that and we put that hardwired into law, that we actually make sure that every presidential candidate has to release their taxes. No bullshit about it. It's under audit. I'm thinking back to the New Deal, and I'm also thinking back to, to the failed experiment of Reconstruction, uh, what most historians believe is the biggest missed opportunity of American history was Reconstruction. It took only seven years to, to address the aftermath of the Civil War and did very little to actually address the, the core issues, which is why we're where we are. And so that was a good example of a bad response to really systemic issues. They didn't do much. If you flash forward to the New Deal, what Roosevelt did in the New Deal, and I'm not sure this is doable in our political context, he actually put in actual reforms. I mean, things you guys all know about. New Deal agencies that actually uh, addressed poverty, social security, uh, rural electrification, regional planning with the TVA and other things like that, um, federal deposit insurance, uh, you know, those kinds of things that actually fundamentally took away some of the things that were actually a big problem for the years prior to the New Deal. And so you had a lot of people, you had a legacy of people supporting that for decades until we got to the 70s and got a real start at the beginning of the pushback to the New Deal. So I think to a certain degree, our, our best defense is actually to just simply do things, to make, to improve the lives of individuals. And then, you know, assume that, some of those people, not all of those people, are going to actually recognize that this is actually better for them, that having health care is better than not having health care. That, you know, those, that's, that's my hope. And that is, I think, rather Pollyannish, but you know, that's, that's the best I have today. As I said, you know, the government's not fully functioning right now. The federal government is not fully functioning. Um, and so that's got to get corrected. And then I think, you know, the hope is, right, that there will be legislation brought forward that will correct some of the holes that we've tripped into in this administration. But I think on a real personal level, it comes down to continuing to support organizations that promote equal rights, you know, continuing to support the ACLU in this country, continuing to support the Southern Poverty Law Center, continuing to support- NPR. NPR, <laughs> thank you, NPR, and PBS, and continuing to support um, our, our colleagues and neighbors and friends who are marginalized and really, setting the standard for, I'm sorry, but anything else is unacceptable. One of the things that Democrats have failed at, the Republicans have not over the last 40 years. Republicans have been locked in at everything from local elections to, to school boards, to city council, to all of that kind of stuff. They've been working on state courts, not just the Supreme Court. They've been working on all this stuff. I have often just sort of avoided local politics um, because it's, it's honestly messier to me and harder it's more impenetrable in some ways and i think that's a luxury i just simply can't 
afford anymore. I can't, I can't afford to actually have the privilege to say, oh, well, whatever. Um, and I think that if we can actually address those, you know, the organizations, the, the, the non-governmental organizations that we support, I think that's excellent. I think being really firm with the people who are marginalized to say, just because we won this election doesn't mean we're done. Um, as Lisa has said, my wife has said multiple times, the work on anti-racism has to be, we got to be in this because this is not going to be solved on November 3rd or 4th or 5th or 6th. It's going to be something we're going to have to continue to work on. And then we just simply just cannot take for granted any election. We got to be, we got to be willing to get people out to vote. The anti-racism work has just begun. And I think to your point, Brad, I've, I've largely done the same. I've, I've bypassed the school board and the local city council and the, even, even in large part, some state uh, politics and really always had a very strong focus on national politics. And let's be honest, the Republican Party is a better, more efficient engine than the Democratic Party is in this country. And that's why we're in the soup we're in now, because they have, they have attained their power by being, by being on all levels. And, and the Democratic Party doesn't do it as well. The Democratic <laughs> Party has been energized, especially since 2018. And yep, one of the things that will work in our favor is the demographics of America are becoming much more multicultural. America will no longer be just a bunch of old white males mm -hmm. with their yeah. old racist ideals running the country. I'm really putting the pressure on women to say enough. I mean, we don't 51% majority in this country. And if we don't change it now, we never will because the pandemic is opening up the gender gap in employment because women are having to step away from work to care for young children and to, and to really make the family work right now. And, um, and quite frankly, it's a lot of bullshit. And so I just really feel like we have to really encourage the women in our lives to step up into the role of political activist, not to overlook the contribution of men. Sorry, Brad, but we really have to put the pressure on women that we know to step up and use their voices because that's the way we're going to be able to, make real progress here. Yeah, and speaking of using our voices, let's talk for just a minute about this sham Supreme Court process that's happening. <laughs> disappointed the Democrats didn't fight harder. We know this is going through. Like, it's not about that. It is about making a statement that this was, this was a stolen confirmation hearing. This was a stolen seat. They are, they are ramming this through because they know they're going to lose the election or they're, very, they're feeling the pressure that they're likely to lose. And they are willing to break the rules, to change the rules. They're willing to be the hypocrites we know they are, but they don't even care that everybody knows to have these hearings. They're going to do it in the middle of a pandemic when three of their members tested positive, one of whom shows up in person and doesn't wear a mask. I mean, like they were, they were just flouting their disrespect for America for three days. And the Democrats, I mean, Amy Klobuchar did a great job in the, in the prosecution of that, but in general, they just didn't put up enough of a fight and, and make it obvious to America and to the media that this is ridiculous, we shouldn't be here. You know, Senator Feinstein, I am done with her. I don't know what that was, but if you can give Lindsey Graham a hug, then you can go to hell. God, following the death of Ginsburg, you know, it's, it's a shame that, that our elected officials on the Democratic side aren't registering their dissent. They're not getting their dissent on record. 
to your point, I understand that they may not be able to stop this. I, I think it's likely, uh, highly likely, it's all going to go through as the Republicans are pushing it through. But, but where is the dissent on record? Where is the public outcry? Where is the frustration? And that is a weakness of the Democratic Party. Exactly. I mean, how do you expect to get people riled up if you're sitting in the meeting praising Senator Grant? We should not have been here at all. You should be wearing a freaking mask because I'm sure you have COVID-19. And we shouldn't even be discussing this because you stole this seat. That dissent should have been louder because they're the example to the voters. You know, we're fighting for you. Come join us at the polls. And instead, they're like, eh, this is going to happen. We, we can't do anything about it. So we're going to sit back and be kind of mad. But ultimately, we're going to let it go without a whole lot of stink. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think that there should have been more dissent recorded. And I really feel like the, the real sham of that is so apparent when the Senate can't meet on a relief bill for coronavirus, right? Right, right. The country is literally in peril. Hundreds of thousands of Americans dead. Millions of Americans without enough, you know, reserves to cover their rent and their food and their medications. And, and they can't meet about that, but they can meet for this Supreme Court hearing. It really just should absolutely be fervently on the, on the lips of every Democrat in office right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have my issues with the Democratic Party. I actually thought there was more pushback in the hearing. Um, I do think there, I'm, I'm going to just suggest, and I'm not sure this is the right response, mind you, I think that there is a, uh, in Nancy and Chuck, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a Nancy Pelosi fan, actually, uh, just because I, I think she, she tends to like to let them undo themselves. But I think to a certain degree, given the polling, the American people do not support this nomination. They don't like her. They want Roe to be upheld. They want the ACA to be upheld. The thing the Democrats have done is make it about, really try to make it about the ACA more than about Roe. Um, and I think to a certain degree, some of the strategy, and I could be completely wrong on this, okay, we don't have the procedural ability to stop them from doing what they're doing, um, but we're going to have, we're going to have to deal with this, you know, after the election, let's let them burn themselves out and, um, and, you know, undo themselves. That's at least one yeah. take. Well, I think that is what they did. I just, I'm just disappointed that they continue to do that kind of thing they continue to they continue to operate as if the republicans will play fair and they yeah. don't a supreme court confirmation hearing is not for the average american voter i mean they don't really pay attention i don't think but that's why you that's why you take advantage of the headlines every night and and that's what the republicans would have done and given how much they're going to cheat to take this election we have got to just do absolutely everything we can to remind people vote these people out. This is the only option. Yeah, the, the leadership has failed. I mean, that's, by, by any reasonable measure, Trump has failed, and the, and the Republican leadership in the Senate has failed. It seems like a pretty good place to stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. I'm outside so that my kids don't hear me say the F-bomb 16 times, and so... That ship has sailed at the Thomas house, I'm afraid. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. And and you don't have Bonnie Lattimore just waiting to tell you what. <laughs> I just want to buy Bonnie Lattimore lunch. That has been one of the greatest moments of entertainment for me is just really trying to support your sweet mom. I know. I know. You totally egg her on. It kills me. Well, Bonnie, God bless her, but the country's on fire, so it makes all of yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. And she knows. She knows. 